You're listening to audio from Red Rocks Baptist Church. For more information about our church, visit our website at redrocksbaptist.org or follow us on Instagram at redrocksbaptist. 300 years ago today, 1723, the famous composer Johann Sebastian Bach was preparing for the Christmas Day services in Leipzig, Germany. He had moved to Leipzig earlier that year to become the director of church music. And it wasn't just one church that he was supplying music for. He was supplying four churches with music and leading a college uh, music program at St. Thomas School. So he was a busy man. And as you probably know, he is a prolific, was a prolific composer. And when he arrived to his new post in early 1723, he wrote a new composition but ended up saving it for a special celebration. And so, on Christmas Day, 1723, 300 years ago, Bach's Magnificat was sung. And that choral work was based on Mary's song of praise in Luke 1, 46 to 55, the passage we're in today. The title Magnificat comes from the Latin Vulgate, which opens with these words, Magnificat, Anime mia dominum, which is translated, my soul magnifies the Lord. It's the same translation that we have in our Bibles today. And as we'll see, Mary is responding to what Jesus had had done, really what God had done to put Jesus in her womb. She's giving praise to the Lord God. And this is the second response to this wonderful news of Jesus' birth. So let's back up for a moment. In the Christmas story, in Luke's Luke chapters 1 and 2, there are three responses that Mary has. The first we saw last week from the announcement by the angel Gabriel. The first of her responses was to respond in humility. The angel Gabriel appeared to her and assured her of the Lord's favor. And she's troubled by that. She doesn't understand why she is a favored one from God. But the angel continues on and explains that something miraculous was going to take place in her womb. A child was going to be born even though she was a virgin. And though she didn't understand necessarily all the implications of that, she accepts what God had done to her. She accepts the will of the Lord. And as we talked about last week, she's probably a 13 to 15 year old teenage girl. And yet her response to this life-altering news is simply, I yield to the Lord's will. She said, may this announcement come true just as you have said. Her first response to the incarnation story was to respond in humility. Why would God choose me? How wonderful is God? I will yield myself to his will. Well, the second response is in this passage entitled the Magnificat. And really, we have to start in verse 39 to kind of get the the context for what takes place as we see her second response to the incarnation. And these responses really guide us. They help us to know how to respond to Jesus's birth as well. So let's look at Luke 1, starting in verse 39, right after Gabriel departed from Mary. The Bible says, now Mary arose in those days and went into the hill country with haste to a city of Judah. So Mary lived in Nazareth. Let's put a map up here. That'll keep your attention, right? Mary lived up in the hill country of the north in Nazareth. It's circled in red, if you're wondering which one it is. And she's up there living in Nazareth when Gabriel appears to her. She has to travel or chooses to travel all the way down to the hill country of Judea, which is roughly this area. 
A straight shot would be about 60 miles. Often in those days, though, people did not travel straight from south to north and north to south because that would involve them going through the land of Samaria. It is likely that she traveled east, crossed the Jordan River, then went south. And if you do this, that adds another couple dozen miles to the trip. She's probably taking an 80-mile journey at this point. And she's going with haste, the Bible says. She's moving quickly. Why? To see her barren cousin who was pregnant, Elizabeth. And perhaps to get away from her family and the surrounding village and to find a friendly place for her first trimester. And so she goes down to the hill country of Judah and she enters the house of Zechariah and greets Elizabeth. And verse 40 says, she entered the house and greeted Elizabeth and came in and then Elizabeth returns the greeting. And it happened, verse 41, when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, that the babe, the baby leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. So a little backstory here again. Earlier in Luke chapter 1, the angel Gabriel appeared to Zechariah. And Zechariah was told, your wife, even though she is old and barren, will bear a child. And Zechariah doesn't believe, right? Zechariah famously doesn't believe because he says, yeah, right, this isn't going to happen. And what happens to him? He's struck mute. He can't talk. And he goes for like the next year without talking. Now, to some of us, that would be a blessing. To others, that would be a curse. And Zechariah is not believing. And he comes back home, and he and his wife conceive, and she is six months along with this child whose name is John. And when Mary walked in, something amazing happened. John, in utero, acknowledged the presence of the Lord God. He acknowledged Jesus, and he leaped because he couldn't talk, couldn't communicate in that way, but he leaped with joy. And you say, how in the world? That, that's just coincidence, right? Well, it may seem like coincidence, but part of the prophecy about John was that he would be filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. And here he is, recognizing the Messiah. Now, what was John's role to be? It was to be the forerunner, the prophet of the Lord, to go before the Messiah, as Isaiah 40 says, to make straight the way of the Lord. And here he is at the first opportunity declaring that he's recognizing this Messiah. It's pretty incredible. And as an aside, there's a lot more to say here about this topic, but this passage has several key verses that teach us the personhood of the unborn. John is not a fetus jumping in his mother's womb. He is a baby. And the moment that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit in Mary's womb, he was Jesus. He didn't develop into that. He was the baby. He was a human being. The Holy Spirit here fills Elizabeth. So she then speaks. So the Holy Spirit is very active in this situation, enlightening people's hearts and minds. And Elizabeth, in verses 42 through 45, blesses Mary. Then she spoke out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you. So this is Elizabeth talking to Mary. Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For indeed, as soon as the voice of your greeting sounded in my ears, the babe leaped in my womb for joy. And so he, here she's explaining to Mary what took place. 
and giving Mary great credit and great praise. And what she says in verse 45 is pretty incredible. Blessed is she, so this is Elizabeth talking to Mary, blessed is she who believed, for there will be a fulfillment of those things which were told her by the Lord. So what's happening here? Elizabeth is basically praising Mary and saying, you are the one who will bear the, the Messiah. You're somebody, somebody that is to be blessed. And she gives credit in verse 45 here for, for Mary's belief. The, new, the NIV renders this simply, blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill her promises to her. Mary accepted the truth. She accepted the announcement. She believed. And tonight in our Christmas Eve service, we're going to think more about Mary's response of belief. So this is the backstory to the poem or the song that we call the Magnificat. Let's set the stage here. So within the last few weeks, put yourself in Mary's shoes. In the last few weeks, she's a 13, 14, 15-year-old girl. She's received life-changing news. Even though she is unwed, she is going to have a baby. And this baby is going to be conceived in her womb by the Holy Spirit. And this child is going to be the Messiah, the one who will save her people and all people from their sins. Then she quickly travels to a friendly place where she can have a few months of quiet away from the questions and pressures of home. Who knows how long it took, days, maybe a week and a half to travel down to Elizabeth's home. And when she walks in the door, maybe she's thinking she'll fly under the radar. She walks in the door and Elizabeth directly and loudly blesses her. What's her response to all this? I mean, if I... If I put myself in her shoes, my head's spinning at this point. How crazy would this be to try to wrap your mind around all these things? And how easy would it be for Mary to start thinking of how important she is? Yeah, you're right. I do have the Messiah in my womb. Yeah, I am chosen by God. Yeah, yeah, an angel did appear to me. Bring it on, Elizabeth. Bless me. Come on. Let me hear it again. But she's too humble for that. What's her response? Well, instead of getting a big head, instead of thinking about her own importance in carrying the Savior, she's blown away by God's grace to her. And her response is actually to quickly redirect praise to God. That yes, some amazing things have happened, but I want to praise God. And Mary redirects this praise to God in three stanzas of this song. And as I've studied it this week, there's a lot of similarities to Hannah's song of praise in 1 Samuel 2. In fact, in the new year, uh, in our Sunday school hour, we're going to be working through 1 and 2 Samuel. So I kind of had both of these passages in mind. And there's just so many similarities. So many uh, that I actually wonder, was Mary meditating on this specific passage of Scripture? What happens to us when, when life spins us a curveball or when things go a little bit unusual or when there's something we don't know how to think through? Hopefully, we're, we're going back to Scripture and thinking through what the Bible says. I don't think it would have been unusual for a God-fearing Jewish young lady to go right back to the Old Testament and find another character like her that was lowly, that was humble, that had conceived a child. And perhaps she had been thinking about this song from 1 Samuel 2. And as she walks in the door, I don't know if this spontaneously came out of her or if if she wrote this poetry later, but Mary 
Mary does some pretty incredible things here. The first thing she does in verses 46 and 47 is really declare her intent to worship. Again, Elizabeth has just blessed her, her immediate response to give glory back to God. The Bible says, And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. Her soul magnified the Lord. To magnify is to make large. Uh, Last night we were driving around in our van, and I put Knox in his seat to buckle him, and I reached for the buckle, and I pulled out a magnifying glass. And I was kind of like, how did that get there? He's like, that's mine. I said, well, clearly it's in your seat. You were sitting on it, though. <laughs> well, what's a magnifying glass do? It's, it's supposed to take something small and make larger. Often, these little magnifying glasses come with, like, spotted books or things like that, right? Or these, it, all the kids under 10 are like, yeah, I want one of those tomorrow, where you open it up and there's hidden things and you're trying to look and find what's in that picture. Well, what's Mary doing? She's using this song of praise as a magnifying glass to make the Lord look big. A couple of other translations put it this way. My soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord. My soul glorifies the Lord. That's a good interpretation of what she's doing. She's making the Lord look large. And then in verse 47, she's rejoicing in God, her Savior. Now, this word rejoice really doesn't communicate the energy behind the Greek word. One source described this or defined it as to experience a state of great joy and gladness, often involving verbal expression and appropriate body movement. That's a really... uh, uh, formal way of saying she threw a party. She had a celebration. Maybe like what some of you are going to have tomorrow. There's great joy, but it's not simply, oh, that makes me happy. There's, there's a movement. There's a response. There's, there's dancing perhaps even involved. And we could probably share stories of, of ourselves or of our children who break out into happy dances when they get the gift that they really wanted. Hopefully, if you're over the age of 18, you don't do that anymore. But she is having this type of joy. Well, why? In verses 48 and 49, she explains why. Both verses begin with the word for, so she's giving a reason for her celebration. God exalted Mary from her low position to a place of fame or renown. Look at verse 48. For he has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant. For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. In verse 48, God looked on her a lowly, ordinary young lady and chose her for this special task. And she understands that from now on, everybody's going to talk about her. You know, there's a very popular Christmas song entitled, Mary Did You Know? I actually like it, uh, so don't hold that against me. And There are a number of questions that are asked. Mary, did you know this? Did you know this? And the answer is, well, some of those things she couldn't have known. But some of the things she did. She understood right here that that people were going to talk about her for thousands of years. But why were they going to talk about her? Because she is a co-redemptrix? Because she is someone that is also sinless? No. Because she is the one who is carrying the Messiah. God has done a great thing. And the result is that many generations will call me blessed, so I'm going to give praise to God. Verse 49 continues, For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Well, what's the great thing here that that God has done? Obviously, it is to, to implant in her womb the baby Jesus. 
God the Mighty One displayed his power to Mary and through Mary. And when God does a mighty work in our hearts, this is an appropriate thing for us to do is to celebrate, to rejoice at what God has done for us. And then she names a specific attribute of God in the, the end of verse 49, and holy is his name. She points to God's holiness, which maybe is not the first attribute you would think of as love, perhaps, or as generosity, but his holiness means that, that he is doing what is right and just. There's no mistakes. He is perfect. Well, why would that particular attribute be so important to Mary? Well, step back for a moment and look at the optics of this situation. Here's a 14-year-old girl who's pregnant and not married. Here's someone who's, who's walking around claiming that an angel appeared to her and that God put a baby in her womb. On the surface, that's ridiculous. If someone walked around today saying that, you'd say you need to get checked into a mental asylum. And so she is, she is believing that God doesn't make mistakes, that God is right in what he does, that there is no reproach in him whatsoever. She is submitting fully to his will for her. Mary is giving praise to the Lord. And then in verses 50 through 55, she, she moves beyond her own experience and broadens it out to God's universal work. What is God doing through her? Well, she is highlighting here the work of God that deserves worship. In verses 50 through 55 really is the bulk of the song. And in these verses, Mary expands to talk about the ways of God in history and in the future. And what's really fascinating to me is if you look at these verses and studying, study them, there is a very specific structure here. Now, one thing about Hebrew poetry, because she's a Jewish person living in the first century, she's Hebrew by upbringing and by ethnicity. One thing about their culture is that they had different forms of poetry. When you think about poetry, you probably think of, you know, iambic pentameter and our man Shakespeare. Thank you. Some of you who just studied that at school went into withdrawals. I'm sorry. Uh, there's also rhyme. There's really cheesy rhymes that you can do, right? Uh, that's poetry, though. That's, that's high-quality poetry here in our world. How did the Hebrew people do poetry? The Jewish people uses a device called repetition. So they'll say the same thing. Actually, you see it in verse 46 and 47. She, Mary's basically saying the same thing, but two slightly different ways. What's she communicating? She's communicating her praise to God. There's a second way that they would draw attention to something, and it's called chiasm. Chiasm is a specific structure that puts the important elements in the center. And so there's something that leads to it, and then parallels off of it. You say, ah, I'm not following you. Well, it looks like the Greek letter chi, which is an X, and the material breaks down in this way, okay? So you have this passage, verses 50 through 55, bracketed by a reference to God's mercy. And God's mercy benefits many generations of people. So verse 50 begins with the phrase, and his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. Verse 55, 54 and 55, in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his seed forever. And as you can see on the screen, I've color coordinated it so you can try to see the different elements. Well, there's a parallelism with, with the next phrase. He has shown strength with his arm. He has helped his servant Israel. God is mighty in his work. And then in the, in the black font there, 
There are actions of God to abase the, the elite people, the proud, the mighty, the rich. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their thrones. And the rich he has sent away empty. There's, a, there's an ironic reversal going on here. Where the elites of the world that we would say they have it all, God says, I don't need those things. And at the very heart of this poem, at the very center of what Mary is saying is what? It's the truth that the lowly and the hungry are exalted and filled. God exalts the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things. In sending Jesus to this earth, that's what God did. Because Jesus famously said later in his life, I've not come to heal those who are healthy, quote unquote. As a physician, I have come to seek and to save those who are hurting. I've come to save the lost. I'm not here for the righteous, but those who need a savior. And Mary is pointing to God's work in the world and saying, look right here. God's mercy means that he is exalting those that have nothing. And those that think that they have everything in this life, he's sending away empty-handed. So what is Mary saying? She's saying three things. First, God extends great mercy. It's the mercy of God that accomplishes his work in our world. And then she's saying that God powerfully helps his people. God works on behalf of his people. He's not absent or distant. He's always in control, working on behalf of his people because he has compassion on them. And then at the, at the core of this song is the reversal. God raises up the humble and pulls down the proud. He exalts the poor and sends away the rich. And this is how God works. 1 Corinthians 1, we mentioned it last week, says that, that God doesn't choose many mighty in this world. The gospel is a stumbling block to those who do not believe. Because we think that, that to be saved, to earn favor with God, you have to do some great thing because that's how our world works, right? To get an audience with somebody important, to get an audience with a leader or a ruler or a successful financial businessman, you need to do something incredible that's worthy of their time. To come into the presence of God, you actually have to claim your inability. And Mary embodies that. She has nothing. She doesn't come from great stock. She's in the backwater village of Nazareth, and yet God chose her. And so what's she doing? She's using this poem, this song, to express the joyful worship that is, that is welled up within her heart. Mary responded to the work of God in Jesus' birth with joyful worship. And how appropriate is that for us today? It's Christmas Eve. It's the day before it if you're a child here, it's probably the, the most difficult day of the year because all the presents are right there and it's just not quite time yet. Uh, we wrapped our gifts, I think, on Wednesday. Was it Wednesday this week? And put them under the tree and that was uh, mean on accident because <laughs> these boys have had to look at those presents every morning for the last four or five days. Can we touch them? No, you can't touch them. On Christmas Eve, what better response to have to the story of Jesus' birth than to celebrate, to worship. Come and worship Christ, the newborn king, as the song that we're going to sing in a few minutes closes with. Come and worship. Come and worship. Worship Christ, the newborn king. And from this passage, briefly, there are three actions we can take to worship. First is to magnify the Lord. Mary used this song to make God look big, which is what our worship does. 
And when we worship Jesus, I like to think that we're neon signs pointing other people to the Savior, those blinking neon signs, pointing to something beyond themselves. And what's really interesting in the Christmas story is, yes, we are trying to magnify the Lord, but the reason we do that is because Jesus has magnified God. John chapter 1 tells us that no one has seen God at any time, but who do we see? We see Jesus who took on a human body. So if you want to know what God is like, look no further than the Lord Jesus. Jesus magnified God because he took someone that was invisible and made him visible. We as his followers now magnify him by following in our Lord's footsteps. We make him look big to those around us. And how do we do that at Christmas? Well, there are small ways. Coming here today is one way that we're taking time out of the busy holiday schedule to say, no, there's something greater going on in worship. There's something greater going on at Christmas, that is, and I'm gonna worship the Savior. Perhaps tomorrow it's spending time just to spend a few moments reading through the Christmas story, talking about what Jesus has done. You don't have to preach a 45-minute sermon before you open gifts, okay? But, But remembering what's so important here, that puts our attention back on the Lord. If you gather with friends or family, Maybe you'll have opportunities with unsaved loved ones. And you can share what the Lord Jesus has done for you. You can point attention back to him in a, in a gracious way. You don't want to be that relative who's, you know, he walks in or she walks in and everybody's kind of like, oh, we've got to put up with them for four hours. You don't want to be that. But to be able to say, look, God has done great things for me. Holy is his name. That's what Mary did. We can magnify the Lord keep our attention on him. But second, to worship, we can celebrate God our Savior. You remember what the word rejoice means in verse 47? It means to have a celebration. The type of joy someone would have at a party. And I I hope and pray that your celebration is full of joy. Obviously, there are many people in our world today who, who the holidays are very difficult for. But hopefully, there is joy that is in this celebration. Well, why do we have joy? What what do we celebrate here? Well, we're celebrating the mighty miracles of God. I mean, just think about the Christmas story. God became man. I mean, full stop, right there. That's worth celebrating. That that God would lower himself to become a human being. There's another miracle in in an older, barren couple that, that conceived and had a son. His name was John. There's another miracle, perhaps even greater, that that a virgin conceived. And gave birth to a baby. And this baby's name is Jesus. And for Christians, really, the, the, the reason to celebrate is not simply because we like the festivities. You know, we like the decor that's up here. That, that's all wonderful. We like the cookies, maybe. There's something far deeper going on here. And if you're not a believer today, really, the question is, what are you celebrating? Is it just a couple days off from work and maybe getting some gifts? I'm not sure. You have to answer that question. For those of us who who know Christ, though, we understand that our celebration isn't just the festivities. We're celebrating the beginning of the gospel story. It's very interesting that Jesus' life began and ended in a rugged piece of wooden furniture. He was born and then very soon after laid where? Into a manger. And where did his life end? Where did he draw his last breath? On two pieces 
of lumber. From beginning to end, his life was humble and his life was focused on the mission of salvation. He came to seek and to save those who were lost. And if you're not a believer, that's why Christmas is worth celebrating. Because Jesus came to do what we couldn't do ourselves. We are separated from God, distant from him, no amount of money, no amount of good deeds, nothing we do can, can earn that favor back with God. There's nothing you can do to come before God and say, hey, I'm pretty good now. I've got my act cleaned up. You should accept me. He says, that's not the way I work. I exalt the lowly. And the lowly are those who humble themselves enough to say, I can't do it. I need Jesus. Jesus came to bring salvation to us. And if you've never received Jesus as your Savior, this gift of salvation is always available under the tree. If we have received the gift of salvation, let's, let's not lose sight of the fact that salvation is the greatest thing that we have. That Jesus is our greatest gift. He is our greatest treasure. And his birth began this mission of bringing peace to earth and goodwill toward men. That's why we celebrate. The third action we take in worship today is to savor God's stunning mercy. And as I've tried to draw out, Jesus' birth is a wonderful illustration of God exalting the lowly and abasing the proud. What does Philippians 2 say, this famous passage? That though Jesus was so important, he lowered himself. Let this mind be in you who is also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. That's, that's God humbling himself. And yet as the passage goes on in Philippians 2 to explain, he didn't just humble himself by taking a human body. He humbled himself all the way to the point of death. It is only fitting that the Son of God, heaven's glorious one, was born in the simplest, most obscure way possible. Because that's how God works. Look at the scriptures. Look at those who God worked through. Look at the ones who God chose. He chose the humble and the weak and the lowly so that all the power and all the glory would go back to him. God elevates the lowly. And those who humbly trust in him will be raised up. Salvation is, those, is for those who have the faith of a child. For those who humble themselves like their Savior and accept him by faith. And this is the mercy of God. That, that though he could have asked us to do great things, he could have required us to do these great feats to, to win renown or win fame, he says simply lower yourself and accept my son and I'm going to do the work for you. That's the message of salvation. That's the message of Christmas. That this little helpless baby born in the manger would grow up and win eternal salvation for us. So how do we respond? Like Mary did. We respond by worshiping. Come and worship Christ, the newborn king. Let's pray together and then we'll sing to conclude. Father, what a privilege it is to be here today to direct our thoughts to the truth of the word and to the glory of our Savior, Jesus. Thank you for him humbling himself, for demonstrating your great mercy, and for bringing us a wonderful reason to rejoice. May each celebration of Christmas 
this year be full of joy and peace as we know our Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. In his name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to audio from Red Rocks Baptist Church. If you enjoyed this content, please consider sharing it with others. Our mission at Red Rocks Baptist Church is to know Christ and to make him known. May God bless you as you follow him.